This episode of Earl Grey is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Hi, this is Elizabeth Denny. I played Lieutenant Commander Shelby on Star Trek Next Generation, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome to another cup of Earl Grey, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the next generation. I'm your host, Joe Keegan. Amy uh, is away. I think Amy might be in, like, on a plane at the moment, yeah. going to... She's going to Santiago in Chile, isn't she? She is, yeah. Amy just gets to go all over the world, doesn't she? I know, it's crazy. (laughs) I can't wait to be that famous a podcaster that I get to go to these places as well. (laughs) So as you heard there, I'm joined with my favorite host, Justin Ozer. How are you, Justin? I'm doing well. And I'm sure when I'm away, you'll say Amy is your favorite host, but that's okay. But, and when you're both here, you are both my favourites. So <laughs> I'll take it. It's not like a, a, a single option. I can pick multiple people to be my favourites. Mm. Okay, I'll take that. Cool. <laughs> so we have some Babel Conference feedback for Earl Grey episode 298, which was the Keiko episode with our guest Jen Tift, and that was the one I wasn't here for. So, Justin, do you want to take it away? Uh, yeah, so we have Paloma Bennett who says, I have to admit that I have no strong feelings toward Keiko O'Brien. I don't hate or love her. I think she has a lot more character development in DS9 The Next Generation, but that's because I believe she had a lot more episodes. I don't really find her annoying, but I agree that it's easier to side with O'Brien since he has a bigger part of both series. So thank you, Paloma, for your feedback. Uh, I I think we did get things across the spectrum, people that are like, eh, Keiko, others that didn't like her, others that that really like her. Um, So, But it was fun doing that episode with Amy and Jen. But uh, Joe, are you a fan of Keiko? Mm. Not so much. <laughs> you know how I feel about Keiko. Um, I haven't listened to the episode yet, so I'd imagine, as happens with these things all the time, that um, Jen will bring a different perspective that yep. I've probably not thought of before and make me appreciate Keiko. I think that's true um, because all her amazingness. I, I invited uh, Jen on because I knew she was a big fan of Keiko and I had offered that topic to a lot of people and no one had taken it, but I'm like, okay, this time I know someone who will want to talk about it. And she was quite enthusiastic okay. about it. So yeah, go ahead and listen to that. See if it might uh, change your mind a little bit. Sure. <laughs> I just, I just, she come, just comes across. Every time you see her, she's seems to be moaning about something, and I just can't do I, moaning. I, people I, just, yeah, it's interesting. We talked about that in the episode, but I question that. I think people have a certain perception based on certain appearances, mm-hmm. but if you actually like watch yeah. them all, it's not every time that it's like that. I think I will listen to yeah. Earl Grey two nine eight, and I will love Keiko. I would imagine so. <laughs> Thank you, Paloma, um, for your comment. 
Johnson Lai says, thank you for the discussion on Keiko. I never knew anybody actively disliked her until recently. I wonder how much her being a female character plays into the hate, especially when you consider the same bitterness towards Pulaski. Are there any equally hated male characters? On the other hand, I wonder if I have a soft soft spot for Keiko because she's Asian. I'm Asian, and there were no regular Asian characters in TNG or Deep Space Nine. Finally, I understand Amy feeling offended about Keiko just becoming a teacher. Would it have made a difference if they had a line of dialogue saying she'd studied education before changing to botany? I think she said she had always wanted to teach. Thank you for your comment, Johnson. Um, Again, having not listened to the episode, I don't know about the discussion, but your comment's interesting about is the dislike of her because she's female? It did never occur to me. It quite possibly be the case. Yeah. And and I think uh, you may have alluded to this in the Babel conference, but there is definitely an equally hated male character, and it's Wesley. <laughs> right? I mean, lots of people find Wesley annoying. And I love Wesley. I, I do too, but I think that, that yeah. he gets a lot of mm-hmm. uh, a lot of criticism. So yeah, yeah. but it, it's a very interesting perspective because I hadn't thought about it that that way. I almost thought that people didn't like Keiko because she's kind of like an interloper or someone who's doing something that we don't like to a character we love, which is O'Brien. And but yeah, it's interesting to think yeah. about. I'm so tempted to say Jellicoe. <laughs> Jellicoe for you. Somebody's doing something to your a villain, character we love. Your villain. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. I know. Keiko's super villainous. <laughs> um, well, when she's she being is. possessed, but otherwise not. Um, well, that's true. But then she, I actually quite like her when she's possessed. Oh, really? And that Deep Space Nine episode, yeah, I think that's a, a I like that character that she's playing. Hmm. She's got bad acidness. <laughs> Which is a new word that I've coined. It is, yeah. Um, I like, I do like Pulaski. The only time she ever annoyed me was when she refused to call data data, and said data. Mm-hmm. I was like, actually, we talk about that on the Earl Grey episode about Keiko. How first impressions like that can really color how you feel about the character afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, true. Well, first impressions last, don't mm-hmm. they? All right, so Jane Boyle says, I feel Keiko is a character that is not served well by the television writers. Perhaps if, as had originally been intended, she had been one of the main cast rather than a supporting character, she would have come over better. The problem is that she often seems to be quite whiny and nagging at O'Brien, who's a character we all love. She comes over more positively in the DS9 novels. In The Tempest, she is definitely a professional in her own right. So thank you, Jane, for that comment. I actually... As listeners know, I read a lot of the novels, but I haven't read a lot of the novels that came out during the series. So I haven't read or hadn't heard of The Tempest. It actually has Keiko and Worf on the cover, which is interesting. And then I think there was a back and forth and Keiko has a good role in Imbalance, which I think is a TNG novel I also haven't read. So that's a place to yeah. check things out because we mentioned during the episode, Joe, Keiko's actually in 25 novels, which is a lot more than I thought. <laughs> so really, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Mm. Oh come on, Joe! I'm sure for some. No, okay, a big yeah, role. but I know I will. I know I will change my mind, so it's fine. But just now, I'm like, oh, grown. <laughs> so I'm all. You know me. I'm always up for having my mind changed about things. Mm-hmm. That's true. Next is some Babel conference feedback for Earl Grey episode two nine nine, which was badass Riker moments. Just yeah. So we have um, Angel A. Sanchez Paris, who says when he sits, and in the Babel conference, it was. Um, it was a little gif of what I call the Riker maneuver when he pulls, puts his leg over a chair to sit down. <laughs> so it is. Oh yes, I saw yeah, that. Yeah, it's kind of a badass, uh, 
thing to do. Yeah, and whenever I watch mm. it, I'm like, wow, how can he do that? I've never come up to a chair and thought, you know what? I need to swing my leg over the back in order to sit down. Like, I never ever would have thought of that unless I saw Riker do it. Right? Like, it's. Not- I don't know if I would be able to do <laughs> <Right>? it. <laughs> I think it'd be hard to do. Like, even if I thought about it, yeah. yeah. But it's. Can I just uh, can Can I just please please don't say Jeff. Sorry, I was it's trying really to think me. of the best way. I know there's. Uh, so I will stand corrected. No, I think the creators of the format have come out and said that it is actually Jeff. Yeah. But I refuse to believe something that stands for graphics yep. interchange format mm-hmm. is supposed to be pronounced with a J sound. Yeah, I know. I can't bring myself to believe that, so I refuse. I'm, the line will be drawn here and no further, so on this <laughs> podcast. Paloma Bennett comments again, um, my favourite badass Riker moment is when he, in best of both worlds, goes against his captain Picard, um, who has become a Borg. But yeah, I think we all agreed that that would be really difficult for somebody to do. Your beloved captain has been converted to being an enemy and you have to fight against him and potentially destroy him. Yeah, so. and he, and Riker does that in both parts. I think Paloma's comment was about part two, but you know he's going to fire on Picard as mm-hmm. Locutus in part one, and then in part two he has to have all of these maneuverings and things to try to rescue him. So he's kind of fighting against him in both parts, right? Yeah, interesting. Yeah. All right. So Lawrence Todd says, I love the dramatic reading. I want to name my 80s cover band Jack Membrane and Justin doing Screaming Geordie almost made me run off the road. I was laughing so hard. So thank you for the comment, Lawrence. So uh, listeners, this was referring to what we did in our bonus section in Earl Grey 299, which was doing a little reading of the AI written TNG script, which of course I think is one of the funniest things in the world. And um and one of the things that comes up in there is Data calls himself Jack Membrane for some weird reason. And I did do a Screaming Geordie. Actually, Lawrence, I think you were one of two people who said they almost drove off the road when they heard me screaming as Geordie. So, oh, sorry about that. Sorry my screaming has become a public safety hazard. Uh, Justin, it's interesting that we know about the two people that were nearly run off the road. <laughs> oh, no. By your, by don't, your don't driving. Don't say it, Joe. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm going to say. I'm not... I won't say it then. Okay. I, I, I don't. Th- we could have uh, we could have lost many listeners no. recently because <laughs> no. they're all dead in the no, ditch. No, no, oh no. I th- I'm, sure I'm sure they're, they're fine. Not. I'm sure they're fine. But uh, yeah, th- thank you. I'll just take it as a as a tribute that you thought it was really funny. So I remember what was I reading? Um, my mom, my dad, and I were driving down to Oxford to visit my sister last year, and to pass the time it's like a six hour drive just had it in one one go um we listened to uh, tina fey's autobiography mm-hmm. which was so hilarious but we were most of the time we're driving in the dark oh no and i can't i can't I see the road in front of me for tears streaming down my face <sighs> like busy motorway highway traffic and all you can see now when when your eyes are teared up all the lights just become kind of stars mm. of like points of light. That's all I could see, this wash of red lights in front of me. Wow. And we could have died very easily. Yeah, so. so I'll just say, listeners, if you are driving while listening to this, I don't anticipate screaming suddenly anywhere in this episode or anywhere in future no, episodes, really. Boy. Please don't. <laughs> yeah. Okay, next comment from Shoab Mirza. I had to comment while listening tonight. Amy, your Riker pick of Pinocchio's strings are cut is my favourite badass Riker moment. 
Also, Jonathan Frake's performance sold the scene and it's wonderfully bone-chilling even when re-watching sets up Picard's rebuttal argument brilliantly. Thank you yeah. for your comment, Shoab. What were we talking about in that? Uh, the measure of man. You know, when, uh, when, uh, when Riker turns it, yeah. Data mm. off and says Pinocchio's strings are cut. Yeah, It's a really powerful oh, yeah. moment. Cool. That is indeed, yeah. yeah. And that whole episode is just mm. phenomenal from everybody's point of view. So thank you for that. Okay, we have a special guest joining us today in the form of human Shoab Mirza. Shoab, welcome to Earl Grey. How are you? Hey guys, I'm good. How are you? We're all very well. Thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, great to have you here, Shoab. I think this is your third time on Earl Grey, right? Yes, it is. Uh, right. I'm, I'm, I'm so honored to be back and, and I look forward to our talk today. Excellent. So I have to say, Joe, you said we have human Shoab, what, what, as opposed to what? Well, do you know what? The universe is a big place and <laughs> potentially has many species in it. So in the future, we could foreseeably have other non-human um, guests. Okay. I'm just covering our bases. It would happen to be <laughs> named Shoab. Yep. For, for clarity. <laughs> okay. All right. And Shoab, the last time you were on was episode 291. We were talking about the power of words and language and that was a super fun episode i remember it fondly it was only 10 episodes ago yeah yeah and then the one before that was about uh conflict resolution oh that's right yeah. oh, we did okay. that with amy right right yeah because yeah. i wasn't i wasn't here we're here yet yeah. <laughs> or i wasn't podcasting or something i don't know cool so Shoab, you wanted to come on and talk about the season three episode booby trap uh, why did you want to come on and talk about that one specifically well, uh, it's been one of my favorite episodes since I was uh, like, like like a young kid. I guess it's it's I, I I find the entire premise of the episode very fascinating. That they start off, um, it's kind of a cold start where you start with uh, Jordi on his date, and then you and then you go to uh, Data and uh, Wesley and Ten Ford, and they're playing three D chess. They're like, what's this episode really about? Right? Which, which I love those type of episodes where you don't really know what the episode's about, and then, and then they receive the, they they receive the distress call and they head out there, and that that the, the whole scene where they show that this is an ancient ship and there's a there's a war, which is they kind of drop some hints uh, via data and uh, and Wesley's uh, conversation, and for me that was something that I found really really interesting. Um, I guess it, it it all stems from my love of like the pirate movies as well, where you have pirates, you have sh old ancient shipwrecks and treasures. So that that kind of always um, like goes past my mind when I'm watching it. Uh, and you see like Picard, he f um, you see him like has this giddy excitement of um, his memories of being a kid and um, uh, doing models, like making models. Mm -hmm. Small starships and uh, airships. That's, that's cool. Excellent. So, some production highlights first of all. This episode was... Oh, this, could, this makes me cry. Originally aired on Monday, the October 30th, 1989, which was 30 years ago. Yeah, a little over 30 years <laughs> we're, ago. We're all so old now. I was a teenager when I watched it. Oh, dear. Uh, it was the first uh, franchise episode directed by a woman, Gabrielle Beaumont. She directed seven TNG episodes, including Face of the Enemy and Lower Decks, and also one Deep Space Nine and one Voyager episode. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's a 
it, it, it's really something to think about, you know, 23 years into the different Star Trek series and movies and things before a woman actually directed an episode. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and also within the third season of a series as well, it's not like in the first season. So maybe it wasn't something they were thinking about until, until she kind of came around or. I don't know like what was going on or, or what, but I mean, now you have something like the Picard series where the first three episodes are being directed by a woman, Hanalee Culpepper. Uh, so, right. I mean, that's how much things have changed, right? And it's terrible that we still kind of have to talk about it, isn't it? Yeah, you, you want to be at the point where it can just be, it can be anyone, right? But but even when it's you are at that field. point, it's it's still a milestone yeah. for this episode, right? Yeah. Mm, yeah. True, I suppose, looking back in history. So can we talk about the what I think is perhaps the worst part of this whole episode um, Geordie's love life, where a failed date at the beginning and his inter- interactions with a holographic Leah Brahms. Schwab, what do you think about this part of the episode? <laughs> I, uh, I'm not really sure. That's the thing, though, with Geordie. Uh, it's it's one of the few times that he actually has a like a romantic storyline. I think mm-hmm. this and maybe one other one in season six with that uh, with Aquiel. Was that yeah, Aquiel? That's all I can think of, anyways. Yeah, there's not much to say. It's just funny to me, actually, because there's the whole violin, and then the girl's like, uh, "I think I'm gonna go now," and he's like, <laughs> uh, "He's like, oh no, this this is over, right? It's crashing and burning." And then and then he turns around, he tells the he tells the violin guy, to, "Okay, knock it off, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like to stop uh, playing." I always feel bad for him though, because I think later on he you find out, I think from Wesley that like he spent like all this time creating like the perfect holodeck program. And as soon as you start watching it, like they're uncomfortable, like bringing in the violinist is it's like too much. And it's like, uh, and he's like totally misread the situation. Yeah. So I do feel bad for him. Yeah. And, and like throughout, then he has this like romantic storyline with Leia Brahms, but she's a hologram. And of course we find out in season four in galaxy's child that Leia Brahms isn't quite like that. (laughs) So, and that she's, uh, the computer omits that she's married. Right. Right. And that, and that's, and that works out great in that episode in season four. But, but like when I, when I watched it this time, I was thinking, okay, like what brings about this whole thing? Right. So they've got this problem that we'll talk about where they're just stuck and they need to figure out this engineering problem. And Jordy's trying to figure it out. And he's like, oh, that's interesting. There's some some written stuff by Leah Brahms, who seems to have written the book on this engine and computer, you know, just give me some logs. And he's like, oh, is there a prototype? Can I see it in the holodeck? Oh, yeah, let's go ahead and do that. And then, you know, it's still like the, the, the voice activation. And then he's like, oh, can you show me this? And suddenly, like, a, the computer takes it upon itself to have the holographic Leia Brahms appear. And he's like, computer, did I ask for this? Like, yes, you did. <laughs> and he's like, okay. And then they're going along, and she's just really flat. And he's like, oh, can you give some personality? Which may have been the point he shouldn't have done. But but I think it's interesting. He kind of, like, backs into the situation. It's not like he was looking for, like, a holographic love interest or something. But it just kind of turned out that way. But, yeah, it's... Yeah, and this would be what I think it's this this is second time that um second time we have Jordy um giving certain commands to the computer on the holodeck and and creating a uh, awkward situation. Like in season 2 in um the one with Data and, and uh yeah. Jordy oh, plays Sherlock Holmes. Dear Data. Yeah. Yeah, Elementary Dear Data, yeah. You know, I thought about Elementary Dear Data this time because I thought like by giving this hologram personality is he kind of giving it sentience like he did Moriarty? I don't know. I had that weird thought. 
Yeah, here I suppose she would know that that she's a uh, she's a, a hologram. hologram. But Moriarty knows he's a hologram too. Right. But it's, yeah. yeah. Anyway, but but what do you, I I know you said it's the your like least favorite part of the episode, but like what do you think about it overall, Joe? You just want to toss it or so? Yeah, I think they've they've gone for a, a B story here to give Jordy some kind of love interest in a couple of ways, and it's just not hit the mark. Is it supposed to make you feel uncomfortable? That he's not good at that kind of thing, the dating scene. Everything about that date at the beginning is horrible. And I don't believe that it took him days to write the perfect holodeck program. I could do better and I've never even been in a holodeck. You go in the holodeck and say, computer, create a romantic beach scene at moonlight and give me a gypsy violin player that's going to play Johann Brahms' Hungarian dance number five. And we'll be drinking cocoa nonos. <laughs> Why cocoa nonos? <laughs> Why? Honestly, uh, just everything. It's okay. like I'm going to make a list of naff, cheesy things to do on a date and do them oh, all at naff. the same time. Oh, that word again. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a very good Scottish word, naff. There's no spontaneity. He, I think he overthought the date and in doing so came across that there was no thought put into it at yeah. all. He's got this weird idea of what, what a date is mm-hmm. and his discomfort with women. Yeah. And I know, Shoeb, you came on to talk about this as one of your favorite episodes. So sorry we started out with an element that's not the best. But I think this is what people think about a lot for this episode. So I wanted to get yeah. that out of the way yeah. before we move on to other parts. Yeah, I I think, though, to me, it's always like a great um, seeing him fail in the beginning and then and then uh, almost in the last few scenes, he's he's at the point where he's kissing the holographic uh, mm-hmm. Leah Brahms, right? Which he's which he's created his perfect woman on on. Basically, you can think of it. What came to my mind just now is it's sort of like a catfishing in modern age, right? Where like online you can appear to be one thing, and oh, you fall in love with that this um, <laughs> kind of a avatar of a person with using fake uh, pictures and whatnot, and just talking to someone in like chat rooms and whatnot. And that's sort of what happened to Jordy here. He kind of led himself into that situation and fell in love with this uh, this avatar of Leah, Leah Brahms mm-hmm. but then it turns out it works perfectly because they have the next uh, episode in season 4 that brings it up again she shows up and it's perfect in that way I think it, mm-hmm. it, it, it I think the episode in like the retrospect actually worked a lot better because you because you know that she comes back right wait I want to go back to to something you said so is it kind of like the yeah. computer is instigating the catfishing by like creating this persona, I'm not sure. Yeah, I I think that's sort of, I think it sort of goes to his personality, Jory's personality. He can either be really, um, really sweet and com- like nice and to, to deal with people, mm. or he's really abrasive. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that I've uh, always uh, found about Jory's character. See, like three, four hundred years in the future, there will be rules. There'll be laws in place for not relationships with fake versions of real people now like holographic versions of people that actually exist like and it comes up when barclay creates yeah. the bridge crew in the yeah, holiday you're not supposed scenario. to do that <laughs> yeah so the because i know like nowadays technology is created and then it takes a few years for laws to catch up to govern how that technology is used look at like social media and countries laws are taking a while to catch up with how people use them appropriately um and how they use it, don't use them appropriately um so i don't think it's just really creepy that i think yeah. what he ended up 
kissing and like that line, I'm with you every day, Jordan. <laughs> every time you look at this engine, you're looking at me. Every time you touch it, it's me. Ah, I stop. know, I know. Yeah. It's, it's that's really, me. That's, I, that's extremely cringeworthy to me. Even, it, even uh, last night I was watching it to, um, in, in preparation. I'm like, oh, why did you actually have to say that? I know, it's, it's too much. Let's move. Let's move <laughs> yes. on from the worst part of the because it is a brilliant episode. Um, it's kind of got you on the edge of your seat for the, the most of the episode, and then there's these horrible little nuggets of Jordy being stupid. Um, so, next thing that we're going to talk about is the ancient war that took place when the Enterprise visits the debris field of the last battle between the Menthars and the Primalians. And we find a Primalian battle cruiser from over 1,000 years ago. How do we think this adds to the story and why Why was it good, Schwab? Well, for me, it's kind of like uh, classic world building here where they're showing mm. uh, that it's not just the Federation and the Federation-associated cultures that have like uh, history in spacefare technology. So you see like this this culture had, um, had like interstellar travel over a thousand years before the Federation was around. And um, with that aspect you also have uh, with Picard's, uh, I guess, his love of um, the ar- ar- archaeology. Yeah, with that, with that's stimulated here to like a great uh, degree. And he's, uh, he's totally like titillated by, by the situation. And that's something that I've always loved. To watch him speak about it, and then you see the reaction of the crew. They're just like, yeah. "Okay, this is uh, this is a side of him we don't often see." Let's let's see where it, where he takes us. I do love that because he comes back from it, and he was like, "Oh, it's it's so amazing." And I think even even Troy is is just smiling, and she's like, "It's not very often we see this side of you." Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it is. It, I I love all the episodes like this and the chase and a few others where you see him get really excited about an archaeological find, and that is really something like a ship from like a thousand years ago and you have the crew and you have their logs and all of that. I mean, just imagine if it were possible to go back to people here from a thousand years ago and to be able to, to see them talk about it or something, you know, that would be really something. Mm. Yeah. 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 It's sort of like how in, um, in our day and age when they find like old, uh, like like the manuscripts or journals of people mm. and and the papers like almost falling apart they'd be very very delicate with it and mm. and and oftentimes they're not even able to see it they have to go through like special processes of x-rays and stuff to actually reveal what's written there because the ink may have faded out yeah. so it kind of reminds me of that i think the the whole idea of the the menthars and the primalians uh-huh. um they're definitely the episode's main antagonist without actually being a physical character. Um, it's yeah. this idea that you've got something that's from a thousand years ago that's going to kill the crew, essentially, and destroy the Enterprise. Um, when, in this battle from a thousand years ago, has been Picard says when humans were perfecting the mechanical clock. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it was interesting me because I was like, what were we doing a thousand years from like 2350, whatever, um, and, and the 1300s? So the Hundred Years' War was on between... England, England and France. The bubonic pl- plague killed 25 million people in Europe. The Ming Dynasty started in China. And Chaucer published Canterbury Tales. So yeah. it's loads. It was quite a... 
I mean, when you think about that, all those things seem so far removed from our current world, right? So it makes you mm-hmm. feel when you talk about that, Joe, like a thousand years is a really long time, right? That that this thing has yeah. been sitting there. Um, and, and what I really like, too, about this episode is that, you know, sometimes something will happen where the Enterprise might stumble into a war or there's hostilities and some ship comes by and fires on them. There's no one that's attacking them. This is all from the the kind of leftovers from this war from a thousand years ago that's ensnared them in this. So there's something I really like about that, that because it's unusual and it's different. Like there's no like hostile ship. It's all them just trying to figure their way out of this puzzle for something that was set into motion, like long before there were starships on earth, you know, like this has mm-hmm. been in progress for much longer than they've even been able to conceive of what the heck is going on here. So there's just something I love about that whole idea that it was set into motion so long ago. It's kind of what happens nowadays when, especially in the UK, um, during the Second World War, the UK Mm. and parts of Europe were really badly bombed um, by various countries' air forces. Um, So from time to time... They'll be they'll be doing roadworks or building houses, and they'll find some undetonated kind of German bomb um, somewhere that they have to come in and deal with. So it's that kind of yeah. And still to this day, every once up. in a while, they find those things, right? Yeah, and just off the coast from where I live, apparently after the war, they dumped tons of munitions. Um, don't know if it's actually true or not, or if it's just one of these old wives' tales, one of these legends, but they dumped all the old World War munitions out at sea, just about a mile from where I live. And that's why they can't do things like explore for oil under the Firth of Clyde or kind of do any kind of submarine work because there's loads of undetonated bombs, apparently. Um, they have, um, like in, in, in modern warfare, they have landmines. Mm. as well and mm-hmm. that's been outlawed by the by by the UN as well mm-hmm. because of just the sheer number of uh, casualties just civilians getting killed cuz you don't know where these things are they're buried like uh, inconspic- inconspicuously and people yeah. walk over and there's like maybe hundreds of thousands even millions of people have been affected by yeah and that they can just detonate landmines. like decades later right yeah mm-hmm. yeah that's wow designed to last it's really something yeah. i just have to ask cuz i'm curious so like in this episode, you see like there's this big debris field. Is that from like, and I and I always try to understand it when I'm watching this episode. Was it like there was a war that was so bad that like a planet was destroyed or, because it seems like there's a lot of rocky stuff or is this an asteroid belt or like, what is this that they're near? Right, I, I was thinking that same thing yesterday when I was watching. That was, um, that's the fun thing about doing episodes like this is uh, when you're watching it again, you really go for the fine-tuned details. And I was thinking about that. It, I don't know. I don't think they had really spoken about anything like that, or or even given it any like details. Saying yeah, because is- there are these things that ens- ensnare them that are inside of I think these rocky bodies. But they, yeah, I, I don't know if they really say like what all of this debris is because it doesn't look like it's ship mm. debris. It looks like it's asteroid or planet or something, right? It's interesting. Memory Alpha says, um, despite the fact that neither side expected a large battle, it was the last and decisive one between the two species and led to their mutual extinction during the 14th century. Hmm. It also resulted in the planet's destruction. Oh, so maybe it is pieces of the planet. I I didn't get that from the episode. I thought it was, well, it looked like asteroids um, 
I just assumed it was like the remnants of the two fleets that battled it, against it, it each looked, other. It looked really rocky, I thought, but yeah. I don't know. Like, well, I don't, when a console explodes, black rocks fly out. <laughs> yeah, on, but the whole ship isn't made of rock, even even if there are rocks <laughs> inside of it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I know, rocks from the ceiling. Um, that might be the spaceship making substance of the future. Rocks. <laughs> Yeah, they just pack in like a lot of gravel to keep the weight, <laughs> to give it some weight. Yeah, insulation. I mean, that does, that yeah. does come from somewhere because in in real ships they think they do have that as like ballast in the bottom of of the ship for weight distribution, but it doesn't make sense in a starship okay. for it to be there. Yeah, it's not it's not going to sink, is it? Uh, not really. Right, let's move on and talk about Picard's childhood hobby. Ashwab, you mentioned earlier um, mm. about. The fact that Captain Picard liked building model airships um, as a child. Yeah. And he also mentioned that he possibly made ships in a bottle. Obviously, yeah. Data was never a child and Worf didn't play with toys. But yeah. Chief O'Brien apparently had the same hobby. I had the same hobby too. Really? So really? I, identified, I identified with that. That's yes. cool. They're all Star Trek ships though. Yeah. In bottles? I've still got... Not in bottles, oh. though. I think it mentions the two things, model airships. Okay. Um, so, so you're, so you're talking about Star models, but I was like, wow, you're building like a, a Star Trek ship inside a bottle. That would be crazy. Oh, I don't think I have the attention span to build a ship in a bottle. Because you know, do you not have to... What do you do? You have to use like really thin tweezers. I think as I understand it's like little thin tweezers to put things in place inside of it or something. Yeah, I've, I've never you used like uh, glue and then you have to carefully place it in and attach it to each corresponding piece. So, you know. Yeah. And then you've got the thing with the, the thread attached to the sails and then you have to pull the thread out gently so the sails all kind of unfurl and so it looks like a, a sailing so, ship. Yeah. So, Joe, you've never dreamed of climbing inside the bottle? <laughs> As Picard says. Uh, no, no, I don't think I have. No. Dream about being on a starship many times, but never climbing inside a bottle to be on a but, tiny but ship. But it, it is such an interesting thing because it seems like a weird thing for them to throw into this, but like in a way, like by the Enterprise getting ensnared in this, they're almost like this ship that's been put in a bottle and can't get out, mm. right? In a way. Yeah. Maybe I'm stretching yeah. it, but, but it always felt like a weird line, like, oh, Card was into ships and bottles, and so was O'Brien, and everybody else thinks he's crazy. That's weird. <laughs> it just though you know, uh, like when you uh, when you consider Picard's character, he uh, mm. like when you find out in Family that he was kind of landbound as a child, right? He wasn't really right. like encouraged to go study in Starfleet, especially or become an officer, mm. right? So that mm. was kind of his maybe that was one of his um, one of his outlets to express himself and to kind of imagine himself in that career yeah that's a that's a good point i mean and also being on on the vineyard his father didn't believe in a lot of technology but something like a ship in a bottle it's like you know glass and some metal and maybe wood (laughs) right to put it together so he could do that without having a lot of technology right yeah that's true and and for me uh on on like a personal note i grew up i i never had the pleasure of making uh models but i i loved uh lego so i'd build like different types of starships using lego uh, i i got as, as many kits as i could no matter what it was there was no star trek kits of lego but i, I just make up my own stuff with lego like starship that still that still annoys me that yeah. they don't have lego like they never got the license for star trek yeah it's, i know there is 
other versions of Lego like things that do have Star Trek licenses, but yeah. it's not Lego. It's not the same. I mean, and there there are people that have that have built things like ship Star Trek ships and things like that. Well, yeah, at Destination Star Trek this year, they had a giant Lego board cube. Mm. It was oh, like wow. it was like a a re a reenactment, not a reenactment, but a a diorama, a giant diorama of the Battle of Wolf three five nine, and there's lots of little kind of starships flying around it. Okay, so so, cool. so the entire diorama is made of Lego. The whole thing, yeah. Wow. Um, it was very yeah. cool. You probably see pictures of it. I'll post them on the Bible Conference. Oh, they've done the giant Deep Space Nine that you've probably seen. Oh, that was crazy. Yeah, I've seen yeah. that. I've seen no, I was going to say, I was just looking it up. So there has never been like a Lego Star Trek set, but there have been a couple of other companies that have done things like Mega Blocks and Creo has done some Lego-like things, but yeah. Yeah, I have a Creo transporter set from the original series. Oh, wait, that yeah, reminds me. Yeah, I, I've... I, maybe it was 12, 13 years ago, I actually got the one from, like, the Mega Bloks. now that you're, you mentioned that company, and I remembered. I, I, yeah, I, I, I think the they Enterprise had, like, a, D, yeah. Yeah, I think they had something like that, yeah. maybe the 1701. I was also looking, apparently, Creo did, like, a model, but it's, like, Spock's volcano mission from Into Darkness, I think, which is <laughs> interesting way to go. Okay. But, hmm. uh... <laughs> okay, so, so that was a Kelvin timeline uh, tie-in there. It looks like for that product, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. yeah. I, I think so. I think Spock's only volcano mission we've seen was into darkness, but yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. Anyway, yeah, I, I built all the the Star Trek model ships that I could get my hands on, like with Enterprise D, Voyager, the Enterprise E, Deep Space Nine, a Cardassian Galore class ship, got a Klingon Bird of Prey. That's great. And the the D Seven, and what else? We've got a Runabout, which is really cool. Um, okay while we're talking about this i never really made models but something i tried recently i forget which company did it but they've done a couple of star trek things where it's like there are these metal sheets with cutouts and you have to like like uh bend the tabs and things and put them together and i tried working Mm -hmm. on that it didn't go well i kept like like almost breaking tabs or things didn't quite work, but I had to kind of, so it didn't work. It was supposed to be the Enterprise D and I think I ended up doing a saucer and then giving up after that. It was really hard because it's like really tiny, tiny, tiny tabs that you yeah, almost it, have to It's sort of like, like foil, right? Yeah, I've, I've built It's kind of like that. Things, and, yeah. and, and it's hard actually to bend it with tweezers. So you kind of have to use your thumbnail and then you mess up your thumbnail and stuff. Yeah, so, yeah. Anyway. Interesting. So it was, you did complete it. It was just from generations after the Star Drive section had exploded. Uh, yeah, because I because th- you but you built the saucer, so I kind of built the done. well the saucer and like a little bit of the neck, but like it was just so hard okay. to get to get any further mm. from that. But no, I I didn't try to like crash it or like uh, smash it on the ground or anything. Land, but, land on a planet, but uh, that's my my only experience. But it's cool that you did all that, Joe. I was I'm creative in like following instructions and being methodical that way. And mm. um, you get this big giant sheet of instructions, and you have to just take it step by step. Um, but I always did it as a kind of speed test to see hmm. how quickly I could finish a model because I'm very impatient and I just want it finished. Yeah, yeah. So that was me growing up. The next thing we're going to talk about is the idea of solving an engineering problem. So in this part, we have biggest part of the the episode is devoted to solving the how they're going to get out of the booby trap. Um, how well do we think that? the inclusion of this worked for the episode and why isn't Jordy seen working with anyone else in engineering? Shrab, what do you think? Well, uh, here it, it, it is like the most uh, 
fascinating aspect of the episode for me because he mm-hmm. starts off yep. in attestation and engineering and he's just thinking off ideas one by one and he's and one thing i noticed about jordy is he loves to to, to chat with the computer right? he it's does. sort of his <laughs> right it's sort of his because because it is a library right so he's just uh kind of just giving um like random words basically like how would you say like when you're searching keywords right on on google he's just searching okay what about this what about that okay what about this scenario what about that scenario process this um like create a model of this and tell me how it goes like like what are the chances of that working this working? yeah it would be funny also if there was like a special like starfleet youtube and he'd be like bring up any videos that have to do with this <laughs> yeah, kind of problem. Yeah, and maybe yeah. there's some like chief engineer on another ship that's like, if you happen to get stuck in a debris field and you can't get out, here's what I tried. You know, like yeah. that would be kind of funny, but we don't have that, of course. Like, ch- like those tutorial videos you see for yeah. all sorts of things. It's like, yeah. Yeah. like step one, replicate this item. Step two, replicate that item. Step three, put them together. <laughs> step four, get some friends to help. To, you know, like... <laughs> I just think that would be really funny if we had that. And, uh, yeah. So to that, so that reminds me, there was an aspect. Um, what was the actual uh, technology that was killing them? Was those? Uh, what's it called? Aceton uh, assimilators. Aceton assimilators. I think it's what so they Basically, them, yeah. it was like a, like a coil that would that would convert the um, convert to any type of energy into in, into radiation. That's the use they had of it, and that's how they had captured the uh, the uh, the. Promillions, right in, in yeah. that trap. So is the I, I just want to make sure I understand. So is the idea that they would just kind of siphon off energy that a ship is using and then put out radiation that would kill them? <laughs> is that kind yeah. of the idea? Yeah. Wow, that's kind of a crazy weapon, isn't it? Yeah. Data mentions that he says they're a primitive device used for extracting energy from a distance, um, and it's not that difficult to change them. So they turn that energy into lethal radiation. Hmm which is what they yeah. did. Although I just want to point out, as we've seen several times in Star Trek, they have this idea like 25 minutes until fatal radiation, whatever, which isn't how it works in real life, right, Joe? It's not like all of a sudden, like one second to the next, you drop dead because of the radiation, right? No. <laughs> um, I suppose I suppose if the, if the radiation was, the dose rate was constant, mm-hmm. then after a certain time, you would have um, absorbed enough radiation for the damage to be significant enough that you wouldn't be able to be healed from it. I think right, but it's not like everyone that. in the ship drops dead one second to another, right? No, they would like, if there was a, a nuclear explosion and you were on the periphery of it, yeah. you would survive for a couple of weeks, but yeah. your skin or maybe would start even to like fall off. Y- and if, it, if it's a little less severe years or decades later, it might kill you, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. It, it's just yeah. this idea in Star Trek that whenever I see it, I'm like, yeah, I understand what they're going for, but it doesn't work that way in real life, right? Where you're just like dead sure. one second to the next because of the radiation, but that's the idea in the episode. What I thought about the acetone assimilators, you know, they have produced like Picard's wine that you can now buy mm-hmm. and James T. Kirk bourbon, <laughs> Montgomery Scott whiskey yeah. and 10 forward vodka. There has to be an energy drink market called the acetone assimilator. <laughs> yeah. Like power you through those workouts. Yeah. Because it sounds like isotonic almost. It's, it sounds like something that's, that, that's good for you, but not yes it does yes <laughs> and it's, it's the idea that you drink it and you extract the energy from not a distance in this case but you extract the energy from the from the amazing, drink unless the drink extracts liquid, yeah. the energy from you 
that would be not good for being <laughs> at the gym. Or like if you've got too much energy, like you've had a Red Bull before going to bed, <laughs> you can drink an, an what, what called an aceton assimilator drink <laughs> and it'll kind of knock you out. It cancels out the Red Bull. It's like anti-caffeine. Anti-caffeine. Mm. <laughs> hmm. Okay. Hmm. But but like so I think we only talked about it a little bit. So, so show up. It is kind of like he's talking to the computer, then he's talking to this holographic Leia Brahms and the simulation and all of that. And you said he likes to talk to the computer. Like there is this other time. I think it's in season four with Identity Crisis where he's trying to figure out like what happened to, for these people to become like another species. You know when they're right. like the yeah. kind of cloaked blue people, <laughs> but. But like, what what is that that in this episode he's just kind of working by himself? Wouldn't he have asked like his experts on the team, like, "Hey guys, what are your best ideas?" I get the feeling that maybe he had them already on that task because there's a thousand people in the Enterprise. You have to assume yeah. there's at least a hundred or so engineering. So maybe staff he had a meeting. Levels, so. Maybe he had a meeting yeah. and they analyzed it and they're like, "I don't know." Yeah. And he's like, "Okay, I got it figured out myself." Yeah, or maybe uh, kind of like how in certain uh, situations, like on Voyager, especially um, Captain Jane would be like, "Okay, just send the data to my to my like ready room. I want to like peruse it and, and figure it out. I'm see if I can find some solutions." On I always own. found that a little weird because I know Janeway was like a science officer and has all this background, but that she so often takes it upon herself instead of like having her team figure it out is maybe a bit weird. Maybe it's for dramatic purposes, but, and it is here yeah. too. It's like, Jordy's yeah. going to be the hero, but it also fits into the love story. Like you can't have the love story if there's a whole engineering team like around him in the <laughs> yeah, holodeck, well, right? So like, like, what um, is he doing? Sir, do you need a moment? We can step out here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, and that brings to my mind, that's the first time we see, um, uh, when he creates the simulation, that's the first time we see on screen uh, Utopia Panicia. That's mm. right. It's the station, right? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and I, and I love that where you see, like, he's looking out the window and you see the partially constructed saucer section. It's really right. cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. But that's true. Like, going back to, like, the drawing room and, like, all this stuff is, is really great. I mean, I wish we kind of had seen more of that. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I don't... That annoys me, and it's because of the whole love story, the the dating plot with Leah Brahms that he didn't have his engineering team around him. Because if the ship's going to explode, you're going to surround yourself with it. With everybody. And and, and yeah. like later in the season with Hall of Pursuits, that's kind of what happens. Like every all the brightest mm-hmm. minds in engineering are around and Jordy's like, all right, the ship's going to blow up in five minutes. Give me your best <laughs> ideas. Craziest. I don't care. Go. You know, but, but in this case, it's like, all right, um, I'm just going to start this holodeck program and leisure. I mean, it seems like a little leisurely the way it takes because it is a couple hours, but mm-hmm. still it's like... Picard comes in at one point to check up <laughs> on his progress and it's really uncomfortable. And it's like you can see in Picard's eyes that he knows something inappropriate is going on. <laughs> but he's like... He's like, oh, um, just looks as you're as, okay. here with a holographic woman. Okay, um, I trust everything's all right, fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And he, he just he just leaves it. He just lets it slide and leaves. And I don't think Picard would necessarily do that. I'd be like, okay, you, Mister, get back to work. I don't, don't know need though. This whole holographic simulation. I, I think Picard likes to trust his people, so he's kind of like, oh, this is weird, but I will trust that Jordy knows uh, what to do. And in the end, it works out. But but yeah. Right. Uh, and then, uh, if I recall, there's a scene just maybe a few moments, like a few minutes before that, where the power 
has has been like like turned down basically because they realize it is the Asatan oh yeah simulators, and the holodeck right? is off. and then the holodecks are non-essential so those are shut off and the droid is like uh captain i need power for that can you please override and picard gives his authorization codes to the computer and and reactivates it right and he's like why do you need the holodeck and <laughs> then like, just a few moments later he goes down right after and that's the scene <laughs> you guys are mentioning yeah yeah, I know. I know it's for the purposes of the drama and the love story, but he doesn't need the holodeck to be activated. He could say, "Computer, transfer the holodeck and kind of make the program audio only, so I can go back to engineering and just talk to Leah." No, like, but but he originally had tried that, but there was a prototype he needed to like physically look at. That's why he went to the holodeck. Um, so, so and strange. then you know, uh, watching it now, I was thinking maybe it has something to do with. Uh, I guess if it was today and let's say Discovery had mm-hmm. done the same thing, like they would show an uh, actual CGI model of the of the warp core and then they and they'd, and they'd probably do like a cross section of it being, you know, dismantled, right? Mm-hmm. That's true. But they'd probably it, be it, in engineering and they would just show like a hologram like above the table or something. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And all they really do in that simulation is look at those big perspex panels with diagrams yeah. on it. Yeah. I know. They're like, so look at look at this diagram that's right here. <laughs> and he like goes around the side of it. I mean, it is kind of a cool set, but yeah. Yeah, as, yeah but... Mm. <laughs> Joe, you're so skeptical of this episode. <laughs> I know. I, know. I, I love the episode. I watched it twice today and I really, really enjoyed it. But it's for everything but the whole Jordy mm-hmm. love interest. In contrast, this with Hollow Pursuits and the way they fix it, talking about the different elements that could be causing the problem with there was um, Wesley and Duffy and yeah. LaForge and Barclay all around that main engineering console and they they science the hell out of the problem. Yeah and and they come up with a solution really quickly. They do and I and I love that also because they're like, all right, give me all the elements that can apply for this. Okay, then he just like keeps narrowing it down until they find five things like, okay, we can work with that. <laughs> yeah, because yeah. like obviously Jack Jack Manite has only has a half life of fifteen seconds and it would have time <laughs> to spread around the ship. And yeah. so Genium and Lucovexitrin are highly toxic, so they killed everybody. And then that leaves Salskidim and Invidium, <laughs> neither of which have been used for decades. However, it turns out that they used to be used in medical containment fields by the Michalax, obviously. And it turns out, yeah, that fixed. Done. I love that you had that right in front of you. Right <laughs> in my memory. I remembered it. It was such a powerful <laughs> scene. Yeah. So that's how you got, uh, you know, pushed into uh, physics, right? Watching Star Trek and hearing those types of terms. Yeah, that is true. I love. I think we spoke about it in the Power of Words. Mm. It was those the science they talk about in Star Trek and nurtured my love of science as well. So I kind of steered me into a career in science. Mm-hmm. Right. Let's talk about the human element, which annoys me, but less so than the whole LaForge thing. So the ultimate solution to getting out of the booby trap is not to use the computer, which they're going to turn over um, control of the Enterprise to the computer because it was fast enough to navigate their way out. And, but instead, they're going to shut down everything and give themselves just a little push and the momentum should hopefully carry them out. And Picard ends up um, sitting at navigation and piloting them out and then performs a slingshot manoeuvre. The slingshot maneuver is cool, though, right? Because that's a real thing that you that you use for you know probes in space to accelerate them to places. So I don't know if you could use yes. it for a starship, but 
No, I, I, well, you could because they do it just now with orbital mechanics and sending probes around Jupiter. Sort no, of no, I'm, I'm just saying that places. the Enterprise D is a lot bigger, but I mean, it's probably the same principle. Yeah, it's still going to accelerate. However, I have one problem with that slingshot maneuver, and it's when they're coming up to it, and then he activates like one thruster. of the aft, one aft starboard thruster. That's basically all that's going to do is make the whole ship spin around its central vertical axis, isn't it? But still continue towards the asteroid. So I think what you want to really do is fire all port or starboard thrusters so that your vector then changes to go either side of the asteroid and avoid it. Oh man, we we need to send you back in time into the writer's room so you can do that because that sounds cool. I just seemed a bit hokey. I was like, because I've been teaching Newton's laws of motion to um, a class in high, in school. And it's, so it's, it's very, it's an, an active part of my brain just now. So when I was watching the episode, I was like, I kind of deconstructed it and thought, how would a ship move if it was just one thruster at the back on one side, just fired, and it's going to start to spin, mm-hmm. but still move forward. Yeah. And it spins yeah, kind of quickly. So, it's like it approaches and then it's like, zoop, and it just flips around yeah, fairly yeah. quickly. It's like it's it's like it's on ice. <laughs> yeah. It does this whole... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. a strange maneuver. Anyway, so there was a question. Um, and Justin, to be honest, I didn't really understand this question. Yeah, because yeah, like, I, and I put this in the outline because I was thinking about this because, you know, part of the solution in the episode is... You know, let's just turn things off. Let's turn the computer off. Let's have a person to maneuver and they can be creative and respond to it. And I was trying to think of like the message the writers were trying to send when this episode was created in 1989 and how it might resonate now. Because I think that, like, I don't think you, I guess you see it a few places in Star Trek where there's this tension, like this technology is great. It's taken us to this great future, but let's not leave out the human element. Let's not just have like, automated starships with no people on them or starships with people on them but the computers do like everything and there's nothing for the humans really to do except maybe to visit planets or whatever so it just made me think because i think there has been you know this ongoing discussion for a long time about technology computers automation um and and how we may be moving towards something that that takes away what like people themselves can do um, so that like computers and, and mechanical things are doing things for us. So I was just thinking that they must have been thinking that like in, in the late 80s as you were getting, I mean, probably at that time, maybe it was more like, you know, automation and factories and computers were starting and they were thinking ahead. But But now, I mean, it is really something where even decision-making to a certain extent through artificial intelligence might get like automated. So I don't know if you were thinking about this as well, Shoa, but like, what do you think about that part where they're just emphasizing the importance of the human element in solving a problem? Yeah, that is a great question. Uh, And I was thinking about it because you posed it like last night and uh, it, I guess the first thing that came to mind was the automated cars and how you have like Tesla, for example, is a leader in that. And and they have those, um, it comes in, those uh, philosophers bring up those those uh, those dilemmas of like the trolley problem where the computer or a person has to decide, okay, do I go left and then I might kill this one baby on a stroller 
or do I go right and and maybe uh, smash into another car and that has like a hundred people with the risk of more casualties and deaths, mm. right? And then you're and then you're kind of passing those sort of uh, moral dilemmas on onto a computer, and that's basic sort of my like like where my mind went to when mm. when I was thinking about that uh, because that's sort of the life and death stuff and even recently um, how Boeing had made a um, it was an auto correction software on their airplanes. Was it the seven eight seven? I think the air seven three seven max, maybe. Right, yeah, seven three seven max, max yeah. where where the sensors would misread the the um, the liftoff and think that it was actually diving the plane, or it was on a very steep uh, vector going up, and it would try to autocorrect and overcorrect, so the planes actually mm. crashed, and you had two major crashes where basically all all hands were lost. Mm. And uh, so that sort of also came to mind. I was like, it's it's true that you don't know how much we're putting, uh, we're putting um, every single day more and more of our like day to day tasks are being given to computers, and they're only as good as the programmers, you know, programming these yeah. softwares. Like the the thing that I think about also, it's interesting you talk about like the the cars that might be automatically driven because, you know. If you take a look at it, it's. Uh, I, I was just looking at the the recent statistics. Like in 2018, there were over 36,000 people that died in car accidents in the U.S. That's a lot of people, right? And then has the potential if it's automated for a lot less of that to happen because a lot of times that can can. I mean, it can happen for various reasons, but sometimes it's errors in judgment or people don't see things. But there, there's always this part of us, I think, that's that's like. Yeah, but I'm leaving it to the control of something else that might, something might go wrong or it might be like whatever is controlling it might suddenly lose power or there's something like that I can't control. So it is this interesting dilemma like, yeah, you could make it safer with that, but would people like giving up that kind of control and and feeling that they could do the best in a really difficult situation or like a moral dilemma like you're you're talking about? So I don't know, I, I, I just think it's interesting that in a show that is so much about like the hope and potential in incredibly advanced technology that in this episode specifically, they were like the way to get out of this. And, and it's interesting because Jordy before that says like, ah, oh, it's a 50, 50 shot as good as the computer, but <laughs> you know, like we've got this, this human element that might be able to adjust. So I don't know. It just, I, I don't really have a good answer for it or what they were thinking, but it just made me think about, that there's like a discussion and and I think a lot of apprehension about more automation that might be coming. I mean, what do you think about this topic, Joe? Interesting. I think about technology, because I use technology a lot for a lot of things. I think the rule of thumb that I will use is, does it take away anything from me as a human? Hmm. Okay. And how does it enrich my life? Now, if it takes away something from me as a human that I think is valuable, then it's probably not a good idea to continue using it. If it enriches my life, then that's good. So I think it's a balance to be had. Um, I've got a like an hour and a half commute to work both ways, so three hours of my day pretty much is spent in a car. If I can some some soon time in the future use a, a self-driving car to get to work, I'm probably going to go down that road because then it's, it takes away the stress of driving for me to work. Mm-hmm. So that will probably be a benefit. If in the future some 
kitchen company invents some robo-chef that can cook your dinners for you, probably won't use that because I quite like cooking. And that'll take away something from me and I'll lose that skill and that love of... Oh, not I wouldn't lose the love, I'd lose the skill of cooking, I think. Um, so... Right, and then you—it's—it's it's about the human um, perspective, right, and our ex- ex- experiences and what we want to plan for ourselves. Like you're saying, cooking, for example. I—I I love cooking myself as well. Yeah. And then if you—if you just pass that entirely onto machinery, then you're then you're sort of losing that flair and the. Um, it, it it really goes down to your emotions, right? Like when you put a certain amount of salt or you know. Uh, in my culture, we eat a lot of spicy foods. So for us, if somebody doesn't have a certain amount of spices and the particular spices, then we're like, hey, it's it's really bland. I don't want this, right? So it really yeah. goes down to each uh, yeah. each individual chef's you know personal preferences and. Well, and and it's interesting you talk about that because I don't cook, <clears throat> and I would actually like it if I could have something where I could program it and be like, hey, cook me this and this, and because for me. I mean, maybe I'm I'm just different. Like for the most part, I'm concerned about like all of the things like having good nutrition and all of that and taste is maybe like a little less important and I don't cook myself. So I'd actually really like that and it would be a, a benefit because I don't do it myself. So I end up eating things for convenience that probably aren't as good for me as they could be. <laughs> so, um, okay. it, but, but it, it, I'm sure it would be people's choice for what they wanted to do and some people would go for it and some wouldn't i mean even in star trek you see people like ben cisco or like Riker that can still cook right well Riker not as good but <laughs> but uh but there are <laughs> people the that wrong are eggs yeah yeah there are people that are still <laughs> that are still doing this maybe the cisco's are a better example but but like into the future i think people will still want to do those kinds of things but other people will be mm-hmm. fine with something automated like a replicator taking it over for them there's something about cooking, though, that is a, it can be a very much a social experience when it comes down to, like, you learn recipes um, from your your parents and your grandparents. Like, I have an old recipe for clouty dumpling, which is not unlike Christmas pudding. Um, it's like a really rich suet pudding full of fruit and brandy and stuff like that and it's amazing but of course when you talk about pudding it's different than we talk about pudding in the u.s but ah yeah we've got the we've got the correct one (laughs) Um, we've we've also got the correct one (laughs) sure sure uh really dense super dense fruity rich kind of like a cake right thing kind of except it's um it's not baked in the oven it's steamed Mm. Um, and uh, you can steam it in muslin, but you usually, it was traditional um, to use a thing called a clout. Um But I don't think we had a clout grown up, so we just used an old pillowcase oh. that was washed. I washed a clean pillowcase, yeah, just, and you would line the pillowcase with flour and then put the, the, the dumpling or the pudding inside the flour so that when it steamed, the flour would form this kind of skin across it. Hmm. Um, and it was, it's really delicious. Um, I want to talk about food now. Yeah, yeah this, so has been, this has been Joe's yeah. cooking minute. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Do you know what, last night, last night I made, I tried to make um, potato dauphinoise before um, and never really, never really got it right. It was never very nice. But last night I tried it again. I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to do this properly. So basically dauphinoise is 
thin slices of potato that's been cooked in cream and butter and milk with garlic and I added, you're supposed to add some Gruyere, Swiss cheese, uh, I added um, some aged Gouda to it and then you bake it in the oven until it goes all bubbly and kind of brown and caramelly on the top and it was, so I think the addition of cream, garlic and butter to anything and cheese is you know, if there's a god he's, yeah. he eats this and he's probably morbidly obese because um, <laughs> it was it was just so amazing and I had it with roast pork, like slow roast pork so it was just all falling apart And it was, I think you're probably making some of our listeners pretty hungry right now <laughs> Yeah, I know, I'm sorry, and it's dinner time here it's oh, like, no. you, it wouldn't be appropriate for you to have it because it's breakfast time it is Yeah, so, like uh, yeah. speaking of like uh uh, like technology uh especially for a lot of people uh the fear of having your 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 livelihood taken over by by technology yeah. justin you mentioned like machinery and factories you know all that uh all that repetitive work has been taken over for the most part by machines mm-hmm. in this day and age right? it's more yeah. the refined you know designs and stuff maybe the textiles like the cloth making maybe to a certain extent has it been entirely taken over by machines but they certainly use machinery for sure to actually build stuff. Yeah, and I mean, I think there's also like a question going into the future, like what other things might be able to be automated? Like I I work as a project manager in an IT department and I like to think that, you know, there are things that I can do that no machine or computer can do, but who knows, maybe in the future, right? That there'll be the ability, not just to do like the mechanical things of like making things, but it's, it's already starting to happen with certain aspects of, artificial intelligence and other things where there is decision making and there is analysis and there are things that have made systems more efficient so you don't need to have as many people to do certain jobs right i mean like that is already happening in in a lot of different industries so it's just interesting to think into the future of course in the star trek future it's not necessarily especially the 24th century it's not necessarily a big deal everyone is kind of provided for no matter what and it's like if there's automation it's like great. I don't have to worry about doing that. It's not like you're worrying about something taking your job. But in our world, of course, there there is that worry and there is that pace of change that that it may be hard to to kind of adjust to or to know like what you can do if you've been doing this job or you've been trained to do this and all of a sudden like you're not needed for that anymore. Like what do you do, <laughs> right? It's, it's a pretty big question. And I think they were thinking about that for this episode and I think it, it still has relevance now and i think in the episode it was meant to be a reassurance like humans will always be needed for this stuff even hundreds of years in the future but mm. I, I i don't know i think in a real scenario like on a starship a few hundred years from now when the consequences could be everyone dies i don't know i think a captain might just leave it to the computer to find the best solution maybe possibly uh, the thing about automation i think jobs like repetitive manual jobs aren't necessarily good for the human psyche like you see people on like factory lines and their job for 12 hours a day is to put some little component on something else and then it moves along to the next thing and they just do that repetition that can't be good for you so if those kind of things automated and it frees 
it frees the workers up to do something a bit more fulfilling or fruitful or useful. Yeah, that's, or that's, that's the question, like way. what they would do otherwise, because I think another way to think about it is, yeah, it might be repetitive or not the best thing in the world, but those are the, the kind of jobs that can help to support themselves and their families and make a good life and all that kind of stuff, right? So it's a question of what do you replace it with, right? True. Yeah. But I think that's the problem living in a capitalist society where all uh, wage slaves, like if we didn't work, then it would be really difficult to survive, you know? Right, yeah. And it's, it all comes down to, uh, in, in my opinion, to like the economics of uh, a particular place. So like like what sort of resources you have, and that can be um, in intellectual resources, that can be physical resources, that can be um, valuable metals and like minerals mm-hmm. that you need to build the stuff that you want to build right and for like a society to function you need people kind of driving that at least in this day and age yeah and it's hard like how do you put like even in canada in like northern um in our in our like oil sector with the oil sands in northern um northern alberta and there's like tens of thousands of people in the last several years who've been laid off or just because the companies have had to shift their priorities they're not needed anymore people who are yeah. like experts in you know removing the oil out of this oil sands or just the or just the regular day to day laborers, they don't have like anywhere to go and they're, and and they're not trained to do anything else. Yeah. So it's it's a very tough thing in this day and age. Yeah, Scotland had the same problem with oil in the North Sea, North Sea oil and gas, in a, a city called Aberdeen, which was famous for um, oil and gas production when back when the price of Brent crude oil dropped through the floor because of overproduction, then lots of people lost their jobs and basically people left Aberdeen en masse. Yeah. They're struggling to get it back again. It's just a difficult world and it's I think the world a lot of times is changing too quickly and people can't necessarily keep up. Right, it's true. We should maybe end this episode on a positive note. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I have to mention, because I'm going to go back to talking about food again, Leah Bram's recipe for funjuli. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, so fungili has to be something with mushrooms, kind of fungus, so mm. I think that's where the name comes from. And right away I thought, okay, it's going to be some kind of pasta dish, um, like tagliatelle with a kind of a mushroom cream sauce. So some mushrooms, garlic, white wine, some cream, like heavy cream or double cream as we call it. Um, or if you're... Um, on a diet, you could substitute in some creme fraiche, some low-fat fat alternative. I got out my Star Trek cookbook, and lo and behold, there is a recipe for funjuli. Yeah, and just to be clear, because I, I was trying to yeah. remember and to look it up, is, is that something that they made up for the episode, this funjuli? I, I can't find a reference to the, all, all, the, all the references anywhere. I find are to this episode, so I think yes. they just made up that word for... a a future food <laughs> i think so so basically what it says the recipe it took me a while to decipher the recipe so basically take a bunch of mushrooms i'd not any mushrooms you're going to take some it doesn't say it says wild mushrooms are better so you're going to take i think some porcini mushrooms and some chanterelles some good italian mushrooms varieties and with garlic, you basically blend them up until you make this... Chop them up as finely as humanly possible. Sort of a puree, right? Yeah, let's yeah. go with that. And then you add that puree to your pasta dough. And then you combine it and then you roll out your pasta sheets. 
mm-hmm. in whatever form you want. So it's like a mushroom flavored pasta. Mm. And then you cook that. And while you're doing that, because it's fresh pasta, so it'll cook in like two minutes. Then you heat some good quality olive oil up with some garlic until it starts to sizzle. So you basically, I got a garlic infused of olive oil and you pour that over the freshly cooked pasta after you've drained it, of course. And then grate some Romano cheese over it. Hmm. Sounds kind of is, delicious. Is that from the yeah, I'm cookbook? so hungry now. <laughs> it is, yes. It's by Ethan Phillips and William J. Burns. You heard it here first. Or from Neelix's cookbook, if you've got it. <laughs> nice. The recipe for fungi. Yeah, I think when I've seen this episode before, I thought somehow it was some real dish, and I was surprised to find out. Nope, they just made up that name. It sounds like it should be a, a real dish, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, like there, there's an Italian dish uh, that I used to like. I mean, it has part of the name. It was called uh, fagioli con fungi, which is like a, a mushroom and bean dish. But uh, <laughs> but fungili okay. apparently is something different. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And that's the thing about Star Trek, though. They'll they'll name something and then someday they'll in, invent it. Yeah, like Ractagino. Yeah. I've never tried a Ractagino before. I'd quite like to. Although I imagine it's like... Well, we need to make first contact with the Klingons. The Klingons, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It's just really strong coffee, probably with some chilies in it. Chilies? <laughs> <laughs> maybe. Or maybe it has like essence of blood wine or something. I don't know. Or like, or like the tar blood drink. or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah like, <laughs> humans drink it and your intestines dissolve because it's so strong. Yeah. It's like deadly to humans. Yeah. Hmm. Except that's uh, Cisco's favorite beverage, sorry. Yeah. True. Okay. True. So maybe it's it's replicated so it doesn't have the yeah it's the been taken out that stuff yeah prop. yeah awesome so let's go with our final thoughts. Show up. Tell us your final thoughts on this episode, please. Final thoughts is well. Exactly as as we've all like talked about today, it's there's so many facets to this episode that I find uh, incredibly intriguing. And I, every time I watch it, I there's always something I parcel out of it that I love. Um, yeah, I'd say it's the way we were talking about the juxtaposition of uh, technology versus the human hand, especially mm. uh, that's something that comes in at uh, the later part of the episode. Yeah, but it's so true, right? You don't know um, how much as a human being can you trust. Uh, something that's been programmed by humans, right? And there's th- th- there's always that risk of an error cropping up in the code, right? Or something mm. failing, uh, at least in terms of power generation, right? To feed that actual computer. Yeah. And I find that cool. really fascinating. Justin? Yeah, I mean, I think I've um, I've always liked this episode. I mean, I think on Earl Grey, we've previously talked mostly about Jordy's love life. And of course, we talked about that here. But kind of leaving that aside, like like we talked about, it is really interesting that there's this ancient war, this situation that's been in the making for the entirety of the Federation, you know, plus the entirety of like different countries' existences and going back to a a different state on Earth. Like this has been in progress for a long time. I think that's cool in being able to to kind of see this idea being caught in the in the booby trap. I kind of like that we talked about the ship in the bottle and and some of the models and things like that. Um, And there is this kind of great engineering problem and it led to I think a good discussion about automation and and including the the human element and things and how that might change in the future so I think you're right Shrub that there's a lot of different parts to this episode and it's not it's not just one thing there's a lot of different things you can focus on I think we've tried to cover the things that we can but um, it's an episode that I really enjoy I think it's 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 a strong one from season three and I'm glad we rewatched it and 
analyzed it. I'd really enjoy it. I know I've kind of moaned about certain aspects of it a little bit, um, but the whole Jordy creepiness aside, I really enjoy the episode. I think the stakes are very high, which makes kind of keeps you rooted to the action on screen. Uh, I think I like I like the um, the fact that they're having to evacuate certain parts of the ship yeah. to kind of kind of reduce the risk of radiation poisoning for people. So, and I like all the there's lots of different things going on at the same time. There's an away mission over to the Premierian battle cruiser. There's Jordy doing his thing, and there's kind of everybody else kind of trying to save the ship. Um, and I like Star Trek when it does that. It's got all these different facets, like you say, Shoab, um, that all come together to kind of solve the problem. And then, right, it's like a, it's very uh, dynamic script, right? It works on many levels, yeah. which, which is great. Mm. Yeah. yeah, Shoab, where can people find you online? Well, you can find me first and foremost at at the Babel Conference. That's our uh, that's that's the network's uh, page on Facebook. Uh, I'm I'm often there. I'm at least I read almost everything or see the posts. Regularly, I'll, I'll interact with people there. It's always fun to talk to everyone. And uh, I'm also on Twitter. That's a place I usually just go through all the Star Trek feeds, especially. Uh, my handle is at schwabam. It's my first name, S-H-O-A-I-B-A-M. I'd, I look forward to talking to people up, up there on Twitter. So thank you so much for joining us today. It was great fun. It was it was nice to see you again um, and chat about Star Trek. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. And now I am so hungry. I want to make some uh, fungi. Some fungi. Did yeah. Did you note down that recipe so that you can make it today? Yeah, actually, I, I found it on Google. So okay. <laughs> who knows? Maybe maybe someday in the future. Awesome. Nice. Yeah. Thanks so cool. much, Shoab. It was great to have you on Earl Grey again. Thank you. Take care. Okay, so we have a preview of next week's episode. And Justin, you're going to bring us that. Uh, yeah, so next week we will have on another guest. So this time it will be April Taylor, um, who's a patron of the network and was on a previous roundtable about STLV. We will have her on to talk about first contacts in TNG. So this will be a selection of episodes that relate to first contact in one way or another. And if you wanted to check out those episodes before we talk about them, we will be talking about Encounter at Farpoint, Pen Pals, Q Who, Who Watches the Watchers, First Contact the Episode from Season 4, Schisms, Phantasms, and First Contact the Movie. So, of course, that's not every time that you see some kind of First Contact, but it's a selection of ones, and we thought it would be interesting to talk about that topic. So, looking forward that's to it. It'll exciting. be great to have April on, right? Yes, I met April at STLV this year, so it'll be good to talk to her. And I can't believe Amy's away again. I know. She's in Chile for two weeks. Wow. I know. World Living the, her best life. She sure is. <laughs> I think that's, about, that's how the young people say it, isn't it? Nowadays? I don't know. Like you're living your best not, life. Not that cool. <laughs> yeah. I know. I, I work in a school, so I pick up the lingo. Oh, okay. So, so you can... Therefore, uh, therefore, I am cool, too. <laughs> you're always cool. Thank you so much. So are you. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> cool. Well, it's been so much fun talking about Booby Trap today, but that isn't the only thing we've been talking about here on the network. Here is what you might have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.fm, Literary Treks. I knew from the beginning it was going to be a very large and complicated undertaking. I was asked by the editor and the licensor to come up with a storyline for Picard that would deal with the fallout of what I unleashed in my novel Section 31 Control. 
in which Section 31's crimes, and in fact, its very existence, are publicly exposed to the Federation at large, as well as its interstellar neighbors. Earl Grey. Troy looks down at her empty stomach. <laughs> <laughs> Let me do this part. I'm going to act it. Okay. Troy looks down at her empty stomach and frowns telepathically. <laughs> oh, I wish. Listeners, could. you couldn't see it, but I did that. <laughs> oh, okay. LaForge. <laughs> Computer, locate a big thing of chips. <laughs> to the journey! What about the basics, planet? That planet's not bad. There's a lot of wide open spaces. You just have to avoid going in the caves. Yeah. I mean, anthropologically speaking. No spelunking on that planet. You can spelunk on the. <laughs> Or Unicomplex, but you can't spelunk on that planet. No. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. That he said... He was taking the new body out for a ride? Yeah, that was great. (laughs) I mean, it was a great line. It just doesn't really fit what really happened. Like, he wasn't out there dating other people, you know? Well, he was trying to figure out who this new Culber was, you know? No, I know, but... it was like funny. The it was lighthearted. It, right. It just didn't. It just doesn't fit what he actually did. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. That helps others to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, YouTube, and most third-party apps, and you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. So, Joe, you want a bonus question? (laughs) Yes, now. (laughs) Okay. So in Booby Trap, there was this ship that was from over a thousand years before. If you were to go a thousand years in the past... Where would you go to? And it doesn't have to be limited to Earth, by the way. Oh, a thousand years in the past. Um, I would avoid Europe because of the Black Death, obviously. Um, where would I go? There was something. The Aztecs established um, Tenochtitlan on the site of modern Mexico City. Um, so that bit might that be interesting to go and see. Yeah. That was in the year 1325. Oh, no, a thousand years from now, not a thousand years from TNG. So what happened in the year 1000? I have no <laughs> idea. I think I would just... I'd have the technology to go back in time anyway. So I'd have the technology when I was there to go anywhere I wanted. So I'd probably just go everywhere. Yeah. I would go like all around Earth and see what was happening. Christopher Columbus hadn't discovered whatever he discovered, the U.S. And <laughs> so it was before like Europeans found the U.S. So see what's happening in the continental United States and Canada or North America, I suppose, wouldn't it be? Because it wasn't the United States <laughs> then. Go there. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's a difficult question, Justin. I know it's a hard question because there are a lot of interesting places you could go. Um, if If I had the ability... To be able to say, to to find out where there's intelligent life elsewhere in the galaxy, I mm-hmm. would kind of find what might be the most interesting culture, and then go back a thousand years to see what they were doing then. 
So maybe it would be a bit outside the Star Trek universe because uh, as much as we love it, I don't know if we're going to really find Vulcans and Klingons and Andorians and Romulans out there. (laughs) So True. Yeah, very much doubt that. If we find life, it's probably possibly not going to be humanoid like us. I'm just looking to see. um, I googled quickly what happened in the 10th century. Um, Lots of wars. I'd avoid them. <laughs> um, okay. Well, you'd go all around Earth. The, the Mayan civilization collapsed. Hmm. Chichen Itza um, became a regional capital on the Yucatan Peninsula. Okay. I'd go and see Chichen Itza and its heyday. There's loads of things happening. Okay. A Buddhist temple construction commences up in Burma. There's a lot of stuff, yeah. Use my advanced technology to help them build something. Oh, but then you change the timeline, Joe. Oh, Temporal Prime Directive. True. I know. <laughs> they have to obey that. I don't know. Does it really exist in our timeline? Anyway. Uh, okay. But it's just interesting to think about because a thousand years ago, things were quite different in lots of parts of the world, <laughs> probably lots of parts of the galaxy. Yeah, I don't think you have to go back that long in terms from now to find things that were really different. From like go back before 1750, um, roughly when the Industrial Revolution happened, then things will be very, very different. Mm-hmm. Like there's no automation of anything. There's no steam trains. There's we're not burning coal. We've got yeah. wood burning fires, and that's it, really. Mm. Well, mechanical clocks. Yeah. Clearly, there's a lot. All right, well, <laughs> well, we'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to do that. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Earl Grey. That will come right to us, and we might read your email on the show. You can also find the network on Twitter at TrekFM and on Facebook at facebook.com slash TrekFM. So, Justin, where can people contact you when you're not stuck in Promelian traps? Oh, man, that would be really terrible, wouldn't it? Uh, you would, uh, mm. and apparently the people died at their posts, which Worf admires so much, but I guess they're just sitting there waiting to die. So, I think they probably died there. They did that something happened, like the radiation killed the them. The radiation killed them all at once, yeah. And they've just been sitting there ever since, decomposing. Yeah. In the cold darkness of space. Wow. Well, when I'm not thinking about that, you can find me elsewhere on the network co-hosting The Line. That's our Star Trek Picard podcast. Um, have a great time with my friends Chrissy DeClerc Zalagi and Brandon Shea Matala. Uh, we've been talking about some things related to the next generation and Voyager, and we've got some great episodes coming up. And then, you know, once this episode comes out, Joe, it'll be December 3rd. It'll be a little over a month until the fir- until a Picard short trek, and then a couple weeks later we'll get the first episode of the show. It's really coming. So once that's out, we will talk about every episode as it comes out. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter. I'm at TrekFan4747, where I tweet about nothing but Star Trek. And you can find me hanging around the Babel Conference on Facebook. So, Joe, where can people contact you when you're not thinking about cosplaying as people that lived a thousand years ago? <laughs> Interesting that I've only started thinking about this now. <laughs> I think I'm going to 
do maybe some like what ha- what was happening a thousand years ago, some kind of whatever happened. Pick that. You could cosplay a, as a, as a dead Promelian captain, <laughs> but as a scant. Yeah, but dead Promelian captain scant. <laughs> wow, that would be that weird. Has to that has to happen. I'm going to do that. So when I'm not doing that, you can find me again on Twitter at joejoe77uk because I got blocked from Twitter for some unknown reason uh, the other day and I got I, I went down this loop of call verification where you had to tell them to call you and they'd give you a code and you'd enter the code and become unlocked but the call never came through oh my goodness from like from like Tuesday um, it came through this afternoon just before we started so are you recording. back on um, I'm back on so get me at joejoe77uk and it's not because and you're a bad I, person. What, what happened? So I, I, it's not been confirmed, <laughs> but I'm not very good at using Twitter. And we're in the run-up to a general election in the UK on December 12th. So I'm, the older I get, the more political I'm getting. And I decided, I made this series of images um, promoting the party that I'm going to vote for and I posted 10 of them in quick succession uh-huh. um, because I'm very efficient with technology but Twitter thought I was some kind of bot that was automating my postings um, so I think that apparently one of the rules for Twitter is no automated bot behaviour mm. so apparently I'm a robot <laughs> Com- hey. compliment but I'm back on so you can yeah. you can tweet me uh, you can also email me joepodcasts at gmail.com and you can get me on the Babel conference too okay well if you'd like to help us keep all our shows coming to you each week you can become a patron of the network on patreon visit patreon.com slash trekfm that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all the details perks include early access to episodes exclusive content producer credits and more available through our special patrons website the patron zone it requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd like to take this opportunity to recognize our current associate producers, Norman Lau, Michael Huter, Thomas Appel, Chris Trebuzio, Jim McMahon, Justin Ozer, and me, Joe Keegan. Thank you for supporting Trek FM and especially Earl Grey. So join us next time for another cup of Earl Grey. Sometimes you have to turn it all off, even the gypsy violins. I'm with you every day, Justin. Every time you watch Star Trek, you're watching me. Every time you touch Star Trek, it's me.